that's been here for the last two weeks, um, you know that we've actually been looking at the life of Jesus. Uh, we actually started, I guess, three weeks ago now, um, looking at the basically his incarnation, but before that, as far as his pre-existence, as far as part of the Trinity. So we kind of started there to understand, and it was actually powerful even to look all throughout the New Test, uh, the Old Testament, of Old Testament prophecy that was prophesying the coming of the Messiah. That it's kind of not like this, well, we're going after God and somehow Jesus is like a peripheral issue. That he actually is the center issue. That all of history, the prophecies of his coming, that there's like more than 400 Old Testament prophecies and the extraordinary detail in which his life was laid out and then his life actually fulfilled those prophecies. It was extraordinary. Um, So we kind of took some time to do that, but... Obviously, today being Palm Sunday, we are going to take some time and specifically look at his entry into Jerusalem, which really led to the last week of Jesus's life, the, the, the course of events of his final days upon the earth um, prior to the crucifixion. So actually, before we actually turn to the triumphal entry, as we all know it, I actually want to read to you guys a passage of scripture out of Luke 9. It's verse 51 through 53. Kind of like this little hidden verse, um, but it speaks a ton even about the entry into Jerusalem and the heart of Jesus as he went to that place. So you find in Luke 9, 51 through 53. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of Samarians to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So two times we actually read that Jesus's face was set towards Jerusalem. What you need to understand when we read in this passage of scripture in these verses that Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem. You have to understand, Jerusalem to Jesus, when he was saying that his face was set towards Jerusalem, Jerusalem was pending death. It was certain death for him. There was no way around it. There was no... That is ultimately, when he was saying his face was set towards Jerusalem, it was a physical location, but he knew actually what would take place there. That there was certain death for him in Jerusalem, and he actually set his face toward that end. Now, the important thing to understand, and before we even talk about the crucifixion, before we talk about his final weeks on earth, is sometimes we actually view the story of Jesus as like a massive injustice. And I will say, like, I mean, part of like different documentaries I've shown my son, which I will say I don't recommend you show us two or three year old documentaries about Jesus' crucifixion, it will scar them for life. <laughs> But certain documentaries that I've showed him, you know, on my Bible 360, um, really when you're watching it, the irony of the perfect man who did no harm, who had no sin, they could not find no faults against him, being utterly crucified in a way that no man has ever been crucified. The irony of all of it is so mind-blowing, it is an injustice. But oftentimes we think of it as, well, he fell at the hands of a a, a wicked ruler. And he fell at the hands, almost like somehow it was the result of wicked people. Without understanding, he set his face towards Jerusalem. He knew 
taking place, and let's even take this a step further. How many of you guys are familiar with the, the passage of scripture in Hebrews 4.15 that says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we need to set this as the context. Before we even talk about crucifixion or resurrection, is that the, he is not some high and lofty, yes, he was the son of God, son of man. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. That he was in all points tempted as you are. Do you know what that means? That means as Jesus was saying that his face was set towards Jerusalem. Don't you just recall for a moment, he had a mother and he had siblings. If he had the same emotion and even temptations that you have, don't you think that there were places within his heart that his heartstrings were pulled toward his family of what it was to leave them and forsake them? Or even better yet, what would the world be without him in the earth and wondering of what to, was to come for them? Let's just put it this way. Do you honestly think that Jesus was in, at no point ever wrestled with loneliness and maybe even a desire to marry? It says he was in all points tested. It doesn't say he was just tempted during those 40 days when Satan brought him up to the high mountain and showed him all the, he resisted temptation, and after that, he was in some kind of glorified state. He lived understanding the very wrestling of your soul. There is nothing that grinds within you, no pressure, no temptation, that he has not faced and experienced and wrestled through to the place of victory. Fully God, fully man. He was in all points tested. Let's be honest here. Don't you think there was some part within Jesus? He set his face towards Jerusalem. That he wouldn't have just loved like a vacation in the Bahamas. I mean, really, aren't we all kind of like angsting for that? I just need a break from life. Like I just need like to relax, get me a massage. You know, like kind of, we're like looking for this relief. I mean, they're, they're, when you think about the entirety of our lives, and if, if at some point Jesus was looking for that place of relief, we know that he had places in the mountains that he went to to pray. Could you even imagine, as his face is set towards even Jerusalem, him thinking, I would love to run away to one of those mountain spots. His hiding place, his safe place, his place of communing with the Father. But yet he knew what was ahead. So he didn't just fall into it. It wasn't like he blindly went to Jerusalem and, oh my word, now they're going to kill me. Like, I can't believe this is happening. He made a conscious decision. And his conscious decision was because of love. He made a conscious choice. And we actually find here this place of selflessness in, 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 inside of Jesus. That living beyond himself to something that was far greater. He definitely, let's just be honest, I'm actually going to read you guys this, um, this quote by Charles Spurgeon that kind of even paints the scenario of what Jesus could have done. He had all power in heaven and earth. He could have called upon a, a legion of angels to deliver him. They would have moved at the sound of his voice. But yet he actually chose and he subjected himself. So we can't view his death as merely a result of betrayal or deceit. The doing of a corrupt government, but it was a conscious act of love. John uh, 10, 18 says, no one takes it from me. This is Jesus saying. No one's taking it from me, but I lay it down of myself. You know, that kind of makes him like the untouchable man. It's kind of like there is nothing that you can do to me 
that it's almost like somehow out of my control, I am willingly laying it down. So you're not robbing me of my life. You're not snuffing me out prematurely. He was willingly laying it down. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. He's saying I've received my instructions from my father. So I have a choice. And what I'm doing is I'm willingly laying down my life. It's an act of my will. John 15, 13. Greater love. Has no man than this than to lay down one's life for his friend. And basically all that we're going to talk about is an extraordinary act of love. It was just conscious act of love. So what I want to do now is I actually want to turn to the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that day. Um, So as you know, all four Gospels... This is actually accounted in all four Gospels. And as you know, if you study the life of Jesus, there's some things that uh, Matthew and John cover, and they're they're highlighted, but you actually won't find them in Mark and Luke. And there's other things when you contrast, and you're like, oh, they didn't, like, report that story. They didn't go through. This is actually given an account of in all four Gospels. The extraordinary thing is that sometimes the events preceding and the the events that were after that basically there, there's more detail added in different books of the Bible. And so we're going to actually look at the story through Luke because it's actually more detailed. And then we're actually just going to kind of throw in two details um, from John uh, that he adds that Luke does not add from John and from Matthew. But you can turn to Luke 19, 28 through 48. And this is the story of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When he had said this, this is verse 28, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Verse 29, And it came to pass that when he drew near to Bethphage and in Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on, uh, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to them, because the Lord has need of it. So those who, so those who were sent uh, went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners said to them, why are you loosing the colt? Verse uh, 34, and they, and they said, the Lord has need of it. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, and the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that these should should not keep silent. If these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And then we actually find as Jesus' triumphal entry, then um, from that verse 41 It says, now as he drew near and he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, 
even you, especially in this, it, it, this is your day, the things that make for your peace, and now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an encampment, an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you, and your children within you to the ground. And they will not, not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, and then you actually find from there Jesus goes to the temple, and this is the story that many of us actually know, is when he goes and he drives out the money changers and declares, my house shall be called the house of prayer. So there's a couple of things actually that um, the, the book of Matthew, after, after the multitude cried out, blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 21.10 actually says, when he came to Jerusalem, the whole city was moved. That's the way it was said in Matthew. The whole city was moved, saying, who is this? And actually, if you study commentaries, it's, there was many in adoration that were joining in with the cry, Hosanna, our deliverer has come, our king has come. But there were also those questioning and wondering, who is this? Like, what is going on right now that weren't aware? And then actually in John 12, 17, this is another detail, is they actually referenced that from the multitude, it was people within them that had witnessed Lazarus being called forth from the tomb. So what we need to understand is that basically they had just witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. I mean, that was like no small deal. Like, it was huge, and it's actually being referenced in, the, in this story as well, is that this multitude had seen Lazarus raised from the dead, and for some of them, it's why they actually were at a point of willing to say, maybe this is the long-awaited Messiah. Maybe this is our, our king that we have been waiting for. So you actually find them entering into Jerusalem, and you find them in this place, and they're crying out, blessed is the king of Israel. They're declaring him, they're basically right now, Crown. I understand there's no physical crown, but they're crowning him as king. They're reverencing, they're worshiping him. They're, even the act of them throwing palms and throwing clothing, it was an act of a king riding in to take his throne. I mean, the triumph in this place and even the disciples rejoicing. The issue is, is that for many of these people that were crying, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. When Jesus did not then come and overthrow the government the way that they thought that he should, when he didn't come in their mind's understanding as the deliverer that now confronted the Roman armies and overthrew and took his rightful place, this is the same crowd that just a week later started screaming, crucify him, crucify him. It is actually reported that it's approximately 3,000 people that were gathered in the streets that day. I mean, it wasn't like just the 12, you know, 12 disciples and some kind of like mini procession where it was almost like a secret, like you're going to enter into Jerusalem, we're going to like declare you king, but we should It was actually all of Jerusalem, even as it said in Matthew, that the whole city was moved. The entire city was moved in response to who is this man? And because all Jewish prophecy had prophesied of this Messiah, they actually were in a place of going, this is it. We're watching it. We're witnessing it. This is the Messiah. We're going to crown him as king, and he's going to come, and we're actually going to get our, our rightful identity back. He's going to overthrow this Roman empire, and this is our deliverer. 
So they had the hope and the expectation of what Jesus was going to do. I mean, basically, we're going to look at the triumphal entry and understand that the whole story is a complete contrast. It's, it's completely contrasting from every detail of it. Number one, let's actually start with his entry. It was a borrowed donkey. Like, the dude didn't even own his own donkey. Okay, so we all know that Jesus actually had no place to lay his head. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was poor. I mean, let's just be honest. He's the king. Here's the contradiction here. He's the king of heaven and of earth. All the inhabitants of the earth belong to him. All power is his. But yet, this is the same man that didn't own a donkey. So that when he would travel from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now get this, he used to, we all know, he used to often make this trip on the road from Galilee to Jerusalem. We're talking endless miles, countless miles, walking in the dirt. No donkey. I mean, even the impoverished had donkeys. I mean, Jesus had no donkey. So you actually find this place of poverty, the, the wearing of his feet, the dirtiness of his feet, the humility of Jesus that toiled in endless hours of walking the road from Galilee to Jerusalem. I mean, this was a, a pilgrimage he made many, many times. And he didn't own a donkey. This was actually the first time that it's recorded that they, he calls for this donkey because it was part of his triumphal entry. It was the fulfillment of scripture that your king has come to save you. I mean, it's extraordinary, that the contrast here alone, that he is king, but yet the utter poverty and humility in which he lived. It's extraordinary. Actually, John Piper, concerning this point, he says, how ill when Christians become so consumed with their own comfort when their master had so little himself. The other paradox and contrast that we find here is that he did not come and conquer by force. That the way that the Jewish people had, had perceived in their mind of that he would come and cause a revolt and overthrow this kingdom. But instead he actually came with love and mercy and to sacrifice for his people. I mean, that's just not the way that we think of a king. That he comes to sacrifice for his people. He didn't come to dictate and to rule over them. He came to sacrifice for them. I'm actually going to read to you guys uh, Charles Spurgeon, a message that he preached as far as the the entry of Jesus Christ. This is a little bit lengthy, but you need to follow it because, I mean, I can't, I would not be able to do it justice if I just tried to recap it for you. But this is Charles Spurgeon and what he said. And he says, Had it been our Lord's will, whose multitude had followed him in the streets, would actually have crowned him there, and then the bowing of knees, they would have accepted him as the branch that sprung from the dried root of Jesse. Him that was to come, the ruler, the Shiloh amongst God's people, he had, he, he had only to have said one word, and they would have rushed with him at, at, to, at the head of Pilate's palace and taking him by surprise. With but few soldiers in the land, Pilate might soon have been his prisoner and have been tried for his life with his power of working, this is speaking of Jesus, with his power of working miracles, with his might by which he drove the soldiers back when he said, I am he. He might have cleared not only the land, but every other. He might have marched from country to country, from kingdom to kingdom, till every royal city and every regal state would have yielded to his supremacy. 
He could have made those that dwelt in the isles of the sea to bow before him. And they that inhabit the wilderness could have been bitten back the, the, the lick of the dust. There was no reason, O oh, you kings of the earth, why Christ should not have been mightier than you. If his kingdom had been a kingdom of this world, he might have founded a dynasty more lasting than any of yours. He might have gathered troops before those might your, your, legion, your legions would have melted like snow before the summer, the summer sun. He might have dashed to pieces the Roman image till a broken mass like the potter's vessel shivered by the rod iron. It might have been dashed into shivers. It is, it is even so, my brethren, if it were Christ's will, he might, he might make his saints, every single one of them a prince. He might make his church rich and powerful. He might lift up his religion if he chose and make it the most magnific magnificent and scrumptious. If it were his will, there is no reason why all of the glory we read in the Old Testament under Solomon might not have been given to the church under David's greater son. But he does not come to do it, and hence the impertinence of those who think that Christ is to be worshipped with a glorious architecture, with magnificent vestments, with proud processions, with the alliance of the states with the churches, with making of bishops of God magnificent lord and rulers, with lifting up the church herself and attempting to put upon her shoulders those garments that will never fit her, vestments that were never meant for her. If Christ cared for this world's glory, it might soon be at his feet. If he had willed to take it, who should raise a tongue against his claim? Or who should fit, lift a finger against his might? But he cares not for it. Take your, your gagogs elsewhere. It means like your trinkets or whatever. Take your tinsel, hence. He wants it not. Remove your glory and your pomp and your splendor. He needs it not for his hand. Your kingdom, his kingdom, is not of this world. Else would his servants fight. Else, else were his ministers clothed in robes of scarlet, and his servants would sit among princes. He cares not for it. People of God, seek not after it. What your master would not have, do not court yourselves. O church of Christ, what thine husband disdained, does thou disdain also. He might have had it, but he would not. And he read to us this lesson, that if all these things might be the churches, it were, it were well for he to pass and say, these are not for me. I was not meant to shine in these borrowed plumes. I mean, the glorious account of that if Jesus wanted to take possession, and if he wanted to rule in the earthen realm at that time, and almost enforce his will, that he had all the authority and the ability to do so. But that place where he was not living for the glory of this age, that he had his eyes set upon another kingdom, that he was living for another kingdom. The irony of this king who came, and he did not rule in the way that man actually thought that he should. Multitudes welcomed him as king. I actually already shared with you um, this. But when he did not overthrow the Roman government he, um, and delivered them, it delivered them in the way that he desired, the same multitude shouted, crucify him. That place where we actually turn on him. When he doesn't manifest himself the way that we think that he should. You know, we actually have good friends who, right now in Kansas City, they're doing a memorial service for their son, their nine-month-old son, who passed away in his sleep. And the, I think the most remarkable thing 
that this, this couple, they're a very godly couple, they minister in the nations of the earth, they love the Lord. And I can just remember thinking, I can't imagine the absolute mm-hmm. confusion mm-hmm. over, you know, God, why weren't you watching over my baby, mm-hmm. like in its crib? But actually, the wife is a worship leader, and today at the memorial service, she's actually singing um, Natalie Grant's song, Held. And I don't know how many of you actually know the song, but it's basically, it's the story of a child that was taken prematurely. But it's that it, it, she's actually, through the song, almost rebuking people that would say it was the providence of God or somehow that God did it. And she actually goes on to say that it's when the most precious and dear in life has been ripped from you. That's when you know what it is to be held in the arms of the Savior. And that's what it is that he comes as the comforter, that it, we don't accuse him for his ways and that somehow he didn't prevent it from happening. But understanding that we live in a fallen age where there's sickness and disease, and this is but mortal flesh that will die. And on some level, we we get to such a place where all we esteem is this body and its comfort and its glamour and how it's presented and what we're going to be with, and we lose sight of eternity. And, you know, one of their, one of the most beautiful comments, actually, that this couple had made is they, they identified, this is painful. Like, let's not deny our life has been ripped from us. Like, we feel, but what they also identified is that their son is now more alive in the presence of God than he ever was upon the earth. Mm-hmm. So it's the understanding of eternity and the glory in that place. Um... Lastly, I just want to comment on, I read to you guys out of Luke uh, 19, 41 through 48, where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Now think about the irony of this. I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of going through all the contrasts that we see through the life of Jesus here, that everybody else is celebrating. The king has come. King of Israel, Hosanna, our deliverer. And in the midst of all of the applause, all of the praise, let's just be honest, none of it even touched Jesus. He wasn't moved by it. He wasn't like, woo, I'm king dog now. (laughs) Now they're all seeing who I really am. You know, there was no place where his flesh was actually even touched by it. We actually find he's weeping over Jerusalem. He's at that moment, even as they're receiving him as king, he's mourning for Jerusalem that they did not understand the time of his visitation. It speaks so fully to the contrast of even what is happening around him. That he sees beyond it and he sees the greater, which is even the challenge to us that we're not moved necessarily by the temporal or what by, or what might seem. And, you know, I do want to, as far as contrast, I do just want to take a couple seconds, even as I read to you guys, that from that place, an earthly king that is being crowned and honored would go to take possession of his palace. That's what he would do. He would march straight to his palace. This is mine. I've come to rule and reign. The extraordinary thing is that we find Jesus... He did go to his palace. He went to the temple. And he went to go cleanse and take possession and bring order to his temple. It's the understanding that he was never intended to be an earthly king. That he's the king of heaven, that his kingdom is of a completely different kingdom than the kingdoms of this earth. And all of this is even type and shadow of one day he will come and make his throne in Jerusalem. One day he will come and there will be a physical throne and that all will worship him and every eye will see. I actually just kind of want to bring this home very briefly here with how does this apply to us? I mean, we can kind of review this. We can go over this and even be struck by the life of Jesus. But, you know, the question that we're really confronted with here is that 
Okay, so it's Easter week, right? So we have Good Friday, today's Palm Sunday. Most churches, we're all waving our palm trees, let leaves, whatever those are. It's like the triumphal entry. We all want to dance and celebrate. If we had a little more room, we could do that in here. But we're a little restricted by space. So we'll clear out the chairs after and do dance party. So it's definitely a, it's a, it's a glorious, victorious time to celebrate. But, you know, my deal with Christianity, because I was raised in the church is I'm kind of not into, like, the romanticizing of things, of kind of like, Easter, he died and rose again, and now I live. You know, like, (laughs) on some level, beyond our, like, emotional romanticizing of it, what does that mean for us? No, really. Like, what does that mean? If he died and rose, does that change our life at all, other than the fact that we don't smoke and drink and do drugs? I mean, I hope we don't. Anybody in here will have an altar call after? Because Jesus can set you free. (laughs) But no, really, what does it mean for us? And so this is a very narrow, slender, there's much more to the pie than this. I'm in no way saying this is the whole revelation of Palm Sunday. But really what struck me from Palm Sunday and really kind of our takeaway that I want to provoke us and even call us to is a couple things. Number one is this question of discipleship. Everybody in this room has a paradigm, and I'm not asking you to identify what it is. Everybody in the body of Christ throughout America has one or the other. You either, there's two options here. You kind of can't fall in both camps. There's two options. You either see what Jesus did, his dying on the cross, even the life of suffering that he lived, and you take it as Jesus did that so that now I can live a life that has no suffering. Almost like he took my place completely, and now I can live a life that has no hardship, no worry, no difficulty. Jesus took that. That's why he did it, and now I'm actually free from that, and I get to live a life of pure pleasure and joy. Or you actually look at Jesus and what he did, and you actually see what he did as an example. That it doesn't mean that you're not going to have the same hardship, difficulty, pain, and suffering but it's actually that he set an example for his disciples. Now, mind you, the first category of people, and I mean, I kind of encounter it all the time, when you really start to like talk theology with people, as far as like the whole like cross, dying to self, it, they're definitely in no need to identify if you're of the camp, but there is definitely those that take the theology of kind of like, I do not need to die to self. When I was saved, I died to self once, and now I'm living now in life, and somehow I'm just like going about it day after day. Now, let me say this. I do completely agree that what Jesus did on the cross is he took, he took my sin. He bore my shame. I'll take that one to the grave. But I cannot deny that through scripture, and even we're going to apply this to Palm Sunday, is that what Jesus did is he was setting an example of saying that this is the way to life. That you are not going to be without suffering. That you are not going to be without hardship. But the understanding that this is the way to life and this is the way to godliness. We actually find in in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. Actually, the verse preceding that is, he who loves his life will lose it. But he who hates his life in this world will keep it in eternity. John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you. I love this. This life speaks on a thousand levels. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, 
they'll persecute you also. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. The understanding that we walk, and then finally this issue of, is he our example, and we walk in the path and almost live the life that he lived, and we walk in that way, is John 13, 15 through 17. For I have been, I have been given you as an example. This is Jesus. <laughs> For I have been given you an exa- as an example that you should do as I have done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than, I'm sorry, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So we have to understand that basically Jesus is our example. And what I want to really emphasize here, because I think this is the point of contention for most people, the question then becomes almost like, is it an example, like meaning, so meaning it's unto suffering? Not at all. The example is obedience. Amen. The example is this, and this is what I'm going to say. For every single person in this room, my obedience is going to look very different than your obedience. Right. Your obedience will look very different than my obedience. And so there's no place of like, okay, obedience looks like this. I have to sell all my clothes and take a vow of poverty. You know, not at all. You don't need to, like, emulate what somebody else's obedience looks like. You know, the extraordinary thing is that in the student volunteer missions movement, there's 100,000 basically young college students that signed these cards to go to the nations of the earth. Oftentimes, we'll actually hear the report, only 20,000 went to the mission field. So almost like those other 80,000, like, doffed it off and forsook the call of Christ. No, 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 no. Those other 80,000, they got jobs. Amen. And they worked, and they financed the 20,000 who went. See, for 80 and 20, the obedience looked different. Right. One was not greater, one was not more glorified, one was not less than, because who knows what for each individual person, the place of struggle to obey, whether it was to go or to stay. Right. So for every single person in this room, obedience is not defined by, this is what it will look like, and that means you can't have a car and you got to ride a donkey. Because right. Jesus didn't own it. So, right. i got to like, we're, hey, 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 we're not into self-inflicted suffering. Thank you very much. Like, I'm just going to say it this way. Because Jesus obeyed is why he had life and life abundantly. Because Jesus obeyed, I'm going to tell you this. I, I don't think he equated his life according... We read it and we're like, wow, the dude like suffered. He was persecuted. Everybody hated him. You know, I mean, all over throughout it. It was a rough package that he had. But let's just be honest. Jesus knew such op- unbroken fellowship and communion. It wasn't a matter of what he had to resist. It was a matter of what he had gained. His eyes were upon the relationship that he had with his father. He wasn't all crying going, I don't get to own a mansion. I don't get to drive a Lamborghini. You know, like, I'm suffering. You know, he lived in a place of, my eye is upon my father. And whatever it looks like, I'll take it. Because it's you I want. It's obedience to the father. So when we're talking about Jesus as the example, we're not saying, okay, now now, now all you folk, you just got to suffer. Like, you just got to take it. It could look like anything. You could be part of the 20,000 that go to the mission field. And for you, that's obedience. Or you could be a part of the 80,000 that stay. And you finance those that go to the mission field. And that's obedience. You know, actually, Tori's dad actually says, you got two options. If you're really in love with Jesus, I'm adding a little bit. I'm adding a little bit. But But if you're really in love with Jesus, 
you're either going to go or you're going to send. Like, meaning, like, it's not really up to you to just, like, live your own life. You're either going to go and sow your life or you're going to be professional and, and, and corporate and you're going to send those that go. Right. But it's, it's a part of participating right. in his great master plan that every tribe, every tongue, and every people group will hear the preaching of the gospel Amen. before he returns. So if you want to take part, you're either going to go or you're going to send. You're going to do one or the other or else you're missing the boat completely. Like you just ain't even on it. <laughs> you're not a part of the end time plan that he has and he's laid out all through history. But I'm actually going to read to you guys something by John Piper um, in closing here. If you haven't noticed in the past, I like John Piper. Brothers and sisters, with 16,000 hidden people groups still waiting to hear the gospel, and millions of children starving through no fault of their own, and many people in our own country hard-pressed because of joblessness and and emptiness, it is inconceivable that disciples of Jesus Christ can go right on pursuing their American dream. We need to follow in an alternative dream, a dream of breaking loose from the shackles of self-serving, of consumer, a consumer culture in which we live. A dream of, we need to step into a dream of doing something radical. Do something radically loving with your house. Do something radically loving with your portfolio. And your income. Do something radically loving with your free evenings. Do something radically loving with your job. Some of you are discovering such wonderful freedom from the love of things. The more this happens, the more striking and fruitful will be the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. So what we actually find through Palm Sunday, and when we study Jesus as far as the final week of his life, is that he wasn't living unto self. <clears throat> None of it, he was not ensnared in self-serving. He was living unto, number one, the purpose of his father, but he was living beyond himself for others. And that really is for us to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. It's number one, the will of the father has to be our great obsession. But number two, living beyond ourselves and living for others. I mean, let's just take a little inventory. Like, think about your day, think about your week. How much of it really is about other people? And how much about it is for yourself and for gratification? You know, I don't remember who has the quote, but there's actually a quote that talks about to truly say that we've done something for, for someone else, it has to be that there is no place that they can repay us for it. Like oftentimes, even what we do for other people, there's a measure of repay. There's a measure of a benefit that we're getting in return or an expectation or it's kind of like a little deal we got worked out, you know, like I cook for my husband, he takes out the trash for me, you know, so <laughs> I can't, so I can't really say that me cooking for my family is completely selfish, selfish, I know that there's jobs and duties that just keep rotating around our house and will happen just, you know, perfectly, as long as I don't mess up the universe there, <laughs> so I do my job, it's not completely selfish, and he takes out the trash, probably not completely selfish, because he knows he'll get three meals a day. <laughs> you know, it's that place that we're, we got a little exchange going on. I can't say it's completely selfless. But it's that place of understanding that when we do something for others, that it's with nothing in return, yeah. no strings attached, of truly actually living beyond ourselves. So the example of Jesus, that he was radically loving. 
I want to charge us as a community to go beyond ourselves, that you would be radically loving. Even, I love what John Piper said. Part of the reason I wanted to read it is because even where he said, with your free evening. It doesn't mean, I'm not saying like so millions, I'm not even saying go dive into the mission field the rest of your life. With your free evening, do something radically loving. I mean, with whatever you find in your hand, to do something radically loving. Because even as we found at the very beginning of today's message, that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his face knowing that his ultimately what was eminent there was death. But he set his face because it was unto something greater. It was a conscious act of love. That for us to be disciples of Jesus, that even throughout this Easter week, I know everybody's kind of a little bit reflective. There's going to be good for Good Friday. And it's not so much the theory of just even a, a story that we read in history, but how that story impacts us and changes us, and even how we respond to it. That we would walk as he walked, and even as we read in scripture, that he would be the example to us, and that we would walk in such a way. So let's respond to the Lord today. We're just going to close with a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you.